Let me begin by asking a question uh, to you as I prepare our hearts for communion. Is it possible that maybe behind all the catchy advertisements, all the catchy lights that we could be in danger of losing sight of the best Christmas present ever given. Of course, that best Christmas present ever given is God's gift of his son. I certainly hope that's not the case. And so to help us towards that, let me just take a little break from John. Open your Bible to the book of Matthew. I will preach this week from Matthew and likely on the 22nd, David Morris will preach next week in the Gospel of Luke as we draw our thought, thoughts to Christmas and to the celebration of the birth of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew's Gospel gives us a look at the greatest gift ever given, and it's found in Matthew chapter 1, and I'd like to just read verses 18 through 21 for our time. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these, or as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That verse, verse 21, namely, is our focus. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel tells Joseph that Mary will bear a son. And Joseph was told to call his name Jesus. Jesus, I believe you know, in Hebrew means Joshua. Sometimes they just say Yeshua. And it literally means Yahweh will save. Jehovah will save. That name, the name Jesus Christ, embraces really, theologically speaking, let me say this, the entire saving work of God's Son. It is by our Lord's life, by our Lord's death, and by His resurrection that demonstrates His entire work. And here this morning, that He will save His people from their sins. That's our theme. So as we come into the Lord's table set before me on my left and right, as we come to the communion table, I want to draw our attention to four questions, four questions, answer those questions that remind us what Christmas is all about, okay? Four questions. What is sin? What did Jesus do to save us? What is forgiveness? And how does that gift become mine. But the first question is, what is sin? What is sin? Obviously, the text says there in 21 that he will save his people from their sins. What is sin? And lest we just go on and forget the reality of that, forget what sin is, 
forget what God has done for us, let me just draw our attention to the fact that if you're here and you're going to partake of communion, and if you're a believer, then he has saved you very clearly here in this prophetic word from the angel from their sins. I would have to begin by thinking that we usually minimize our sin as if it were really not a big deal. We tell ourselves, I think, often that God is merciful and loving, is he not? He understands our sin and he can't be so hard on us, can he? But even that, beloved, is a form of deception. I mean, did you know, just look at it another way. If from the age of 15 years old, you sinned, and I'm, I'm being very uh, uh, minimalistic here. If you sinned three times a day from the time you were 15 all the way up to the age of 70, you will have sinned 60,000 times. And I, I know, that's right. That was probably Nick back there. And you, I mean, you can do the math. If you sin up to six times, 15 all the way to 70, you'll have sinned 120,000 times. I mean, I just think we fail to understand sin's evil. Let me just say this to you, beloved, that God hates sin. He loathes sin. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk said in 1.13 that his eyes are too pure to even look on evil. It says there in that text that they can't even tolerate wrongdoing. I mean, we already sung this morning, only, only a holy God, and sin is utterly contrary to the nature of God. In Isaiah 6, 3, that is holy, holy, holy. So, beloved, you know that as we come to the communion table, that the supreme quality, or I should say the supreme penalty, excuse me, for sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. And it's exacted for every infraction against the law of God, according to Romans 6. In fact, even the smallest transgression is worthy of the same penalty. The writer of James says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he has become guilty of all. So we're lost in this, that we sin, that the wages of sin is death, that you could keep the whole law but just stumble at one point and you've become guilty of all. One author said that sin stains the soul. It degrades a person's nobility. It darkens the mind. It makes us worse than animals because even animals cannot sin. Beloved, the scripture tells us that sin defiles. In fact, scripture calls sin in James 1.21, filthiness. And in another text in Proverbs 26.11, sin is compared to vomit. And sinners are the dogs who lick it, Proverbs 26.11. Sin in 2 Peter 2.22 is called mire, and sinners are the swine who wallow in it. Sin in Scripture is likened to a putrefying corpse. Sinners in Scripture are the tombs that contain the stench and the foulness of it. 
Matthew 23, 30, 27. Sin has turned humanity into a polluted race. And what's worse than all of that is that all of our members are affected by it. Jesus said this, if your right hand causes you to sin, what? Cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you should uh, lose one of your members than that your whole body should go to, what? Hell. Sin sends people to hell. All sin, beloved, is rebellion against God. Sin seeks to dethrone God. Sin sets self in his place. All sin is pride. Sin says, God, I'm in charge. Sin is blasphemy against God. And the truth is, of my own life, your life, before Christ, we love our sin so much that we even would seek opportunities to act it out. But there's a problem there that even that we know instinctively that we are guilty before God, but we inevitably attempt to camouflage our own sinfulness. I mean, beloved, when it says that he came to save us from our sins, there's just a short description of what sin is. But beloved, I'd have to say it just struck me again this week. Here's what's scary about sin. Sin doesn't even always express itself in overt acts. I think when I'm talking sin, you're thinking overt acts, and it certainly is that. But sin includes sinful attitudes, sinful desires, a sinful state of the heart are just as reprehensible as the actions they produce. Sin pervades, if you will, the inner recesses of our hearts. Do you remember when Jesus said that in Matthew 15? For out of the heart, the heart, out of the inside, come the evil thoughts, the murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus said, these are what defile the person. It's not what comes in from the outside. It's what comes from the inside out. I mean, sin is just a dangerous thing. I hope you're not making light of that. And I hope as you take the bread and I hope as you take the cup, you're going to recognize what the Lord Jesus Christ did to take that away. In fact, Jesus said that anger just in the heart is as sinful as murder and lust in the heart is as tantamount to adultery, Matthew 5, 21 through 28. I mean, beloved, this is a, a serious thing. And, and uh, you know, you just think if, if you put it this way, that the greatest command, you know this, in God's word is to love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Have you ever considered that merely a lack of love for God is the epitome of all sin? Just don't love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ultimately, though, what's frightening about sin, if I could say it this way, sin is just unthankfulness. All the food the sinner ever eats, God gave him. All the air the sinner ever breathes, God gave him. All the joys the sinner ever experiences, God provided. And all the love that's ever experienced is from God. 
And Paul said in Romans chapter one that the wrath of God, listen to this, is revealed from heaven because although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give frightening thanks to him. Just wake up every day as some people do. Don't have a thought of God. Never crosses their mind that he made your mind, that he made your brain, that he gave you blood to flow. Never crosses their mind. That is unthankfulness. If you remove sin, you take away the possibility of repentance. If you remove sin, you abolish the doctrine of human depravity. If you do that, then you void the divine plan of salvation. One writer said, erase the notion of personal guilt and you eliminate the need for a savior. So what is sin then? Sin is a violation of God's standard and we have sinned against God. And I think I just want to say at the beginning there, we shouldn't minimize it. But beloved, praise God, the power of the gospel, I don't know if most people understand this, is that Matthew 1.21, he will save his people from their sin. That's what he does. That's the gospel. You might ask the question, how does Christ do that? Second question, take you from what is sin to how does Jesus save us from our sins? How does he do that? And as you understand the, the content of the gospel, Ephesians 1.21 tells us that he redeems us, there's the key word, from our sins. It says, does Paul in Ephesians 1, 7, he uses that language. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Again, it says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What do you mean there when, what does he mean when he says we have redemption? In other words, God in Christ, if you're saved this morning, has redeemed you. He has redeemed you off the block, if you will. Redemption in biblical terms is a person who is in bondage from which it is impossible personally to be set free from. In other words, they can't do it on their own. Deliverance, biblically, always comes outside of yourself. And whenever that redemption comes and whenever that deliverance comes, it always comes by payment of a price. So often a slave, if you will, in these times was redeemed and he would be redeemed by the payment of a price. Sometimes prisoners were redeemed and to get that prisoner out, you had to pay a price. Sometimes land, I think as we would understand that, land would be redeemed and when land was redeemed, it came by payment of a price. Now, biblically speaking, to be redeemed then means to be delivered. So in him, we have redemption. In other words, we've been released from sin. We've been released from death. We've been released from hell itself. And our redemption in Ephesians 1.7 comes through Christ and his shed blood. The Bible says in the book of Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. So beloved, listen, 
All those sins that you've ever committed, you've been redeemed. And you weren't redeemed by your effort. You weren't redeemed by your works. You weren't redeemed by being a good person. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, it says in Romans 5.9, you have been justified by his blood. In other words, you've been declared righteous. Your sins were removed. How was it removed? By his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. So beloved, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, I don't know what you think about when you think about something being held fast and bound, but my mind always comes back to when I was a little boy, I had a dog. I think I may have shared this once with you before. It was just a young guy in elementary school and behind our house in Canoga Park lived a deaf couple. They couldn't hear and they had two big, giant, is it Doberman pinchers? And when you're little, I just thought they were horses. There's horses in their backyard, mom, dad. And one time, one of those Dobermans got out of the backyard. Their backyard came around and just took my little dog, grabbed it by the neck, and just began to shake it like a rag doll. And he just, he got, the, the Doberman got it in its, its mouth, locked down on it, and we were just punching this thing. Of course, we were calling for the mom and dad, but they couldn't hear us, right? So this, he just, he's just shaking this thing, and it just seemed like it went on forever. There was no release. He was caught in the jaws of death. Uh, fortunately, eventually, that dog did let go, and we had to rush our dog to the vet, and it did live. But when I think about that picture, I think spiritually speaking, you, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sin. You before Christ were destined for eternal hell as a child of wrath. You were, the Bible says, darkened in your understanding. There was no life in you. You were depraved, the Bible says, to the core of your being and my being. In fact, you were caught in the jaws of death. But beloved, listen, the profound reality of the cross is to be released from all of your sins. In other words, when you come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, all your guilt is gone, your punishment is removed, hell is banished, sin is defeated, bondage is broken, and Satan is overthrown. So listen, as you come to the Lord's table, we were sinners, the worst kinds of sinners, and yet God redeemed us. And he redeemed us, if you will, by his death on the cross. I've been reading a book to my grandchildren all this week. It's been so funny. I don't know if you've ever seen this book, but it's wonderful. It's called The Dangerous Journey. Johnny, do you remember this book? We read this book. This is The Dangerous Journey. It's the story of Pilgrim's Progress. Of course, it's written by the old Puritan by the name of John Bunyan. And I used to think when I was young, if Spurgeon read this book over a hundred times in his life, 
It's worth reading. So this little book, Dangerous Journey, is, is about Christian's journey on his way to the celestial city. But at the beginning of it, and I'll show it you afterward, Christian has this big giant burden on his back. This just, it would be like the, the, the grand piano behind Herod's palace over here, putting the grand piano. And, and Big Poppy, what, what, what's on his back? That's my name, Big Poppy. Uh, what, what, what's on his back? Well, that's his burden. Well, Big Poppy, what's his burden? Well, I think Bunyan wants you to see that that's the sin that he's carrying. But Big Poppy, how come he still has it? How come everywhere he goes, he's carrying sin? I said, because it's a picture of what life is like without Jesus Christ. He carried the burden. It represented all of his sin, all of his guilt, all of his punishment. And everywhere Christian went early on, he was carrying this burden until about a third of the way through, he comes to the foot of the cross. And it's at the foot of the cross that his burden rolls off. And his burden rolls off down the hill into the place of the tomb where Jesus was resurrected. And it's a wonderful, wonderful analogy of the Christian life. But the picture that he gives there is that before Christ, you are enslaved to your sin. You are in bondage to your guilt. You are just away from God, alienated from God. You're without hope, but when Christ comes, he becomes your substitute and he experiences the wrath you deserved. He redeems you, listen, by his shed blood. I want that to be absolutely individual for you today. The cup's going to come. The bread will come first. And we're doing that in remembrance of him on what he did. Imagine this, Grace Church. Imagine a man on death row. He is convicted of heinous crimes. And all legal appeals have been exhausted. His appending execution on death row looms nearer every day. But suddenly one morning as he's awaiting that, the cell door is flung open and the judge who sentenced him stands there with a full pardon in his hand. But he carries more than a pardon. He carries papers. He carries papers of adoption into his own family. And the judge who sentenced this man to die has now adopted him as his own son. The death row inmate is not put out on the street, we like to say in a cheap set of new clothes. No, he's taken into the home of the judge and he is provided with all the love and the care that the judge lavishes on his own children. I mean, obviously the illustration falls short of the biblical concept because in actuality, the judge, the true judge, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't enter into the cell room for you. He stood and died in your place. This is just something very intimate this morning, very personal, that the Lord Jesus Christ took your sins, he bore your sins on his back on the cross. Spiritually speaking, Christ redeemed us from sins gripped by the payment of a price, and the price was his own life. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.13, I think it will come up on the screen, now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off, that you see it there, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Beloved individual, he dies in your place. He dies as your substitute. So don't let that become too familiar. The old story is told of an orphan boy 
who was living with his grandmother when the house caught fire. And the grandmother, trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy, actually died in the flames. The boy's cries were finally answered by a man, if you can picture this, climbed an iron drain pipe and came down with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. Weeks later, a hearing was held to determine the custody of the child. Families, of course, stepped forward in that small town to assist the boy if, if they could, adopt him if they could. But as they talked in this hearing, the boy's eyes remained focused on the floor. Then at that moment, a man walked to the front and slowly took his hands out of his pocket, revealing the scars on them. As the crowd gasped, the boy cried out in recognition. Of course, this was the man who had saved his life and whose hands had been burned when he climbed the hot pipe. And with a leap, the boy threw his arms around the man's neck and held on for dear life. And the truth is, in that courtroom that day, those marred hands had settled the issue. But how much greater is it the Lord's marred hands, feet, and death that settled the issue for you? He gave his blood for you. He gave his life for you. The writer of Hebrews says in 9.12 that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calf, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He died for you. He died in your place. He died as your substitute. Peter, the writer in 1 Peter 1.18 said there, did the apostle, you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul writing to the church at Colossae said in Colossians 2, you were dead, spiritually dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God, the text says, made you alive together with him. I always think theologically, that's the Bible. He made you alive. He regenerated you. He caused you to be born again. He breathed life where there was no life. And then it says, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the what? To the cross. I think there's just a wonderful picture there. And I, I've probably shared this with you before. If you were to go into any Roman jail cell at that time and they were notorious for keeping criminals and torturing them, if you were to walk in one of those maritime jail cells that was often underneath the ground, you would come to the cell and on the outside of the cell, if you will, would be the, the, the list of sins that this man had committed. He would be inside the cell. A cell. In other words, it was the certificate of debt of the sins that consisted of what this man or maybe this woman had done. And what Paul is saying here is he canceled out the record of debt that stood against you. You were a people that also had a certificate of debt as I was. And what Jesus Christ did is he took that sin, he took that certificate, if you will, that stood against you with all of its legal demands that God is just. This he set aside and he nailed it to the cross. 
So beloved, listen, he will save his people from their sin. Sin is against God. How does he do that? He redeems us through his blood and he dies on the cross for us. But that begs a third question. And we just read it there in Colossians, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Just a word there. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? We just use words sometimes and uh, I, I think sometimes we bring our own human collaboration is. When he, when it says there, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is just a, it's a Greek word. It's a fiume. And literally what it means, and I think the biblical word is much more profound than what we think. But to be forgiven biblically, the word just means to let go. That's really literally what the word means. It's the idea of letting go of something or sending something away. Or the thought here is of dismissal. So letting go, sending away, dismissal. And obviously in this case, it's of our sin. Our sin deviates, if you will, from the path of God's righteousness. Sin is to miss the mark. But beloved, listen, this is to encourage you. And this is to think about the birth of Christ. For it is he who will save their people from their sins. And he does that by taking your sins. But he also does that in forgiving your sin. What God does in salvation is he lets go of sin. He dismisses your sin. He wipes away your sin. He forgives your sins which were against you. He forgives, beloved, every trespass of sin, even the one that would send you to hell. Ultimately, beloved, if you can grasp this, forgiveness is really a promise. I mean, it's a reality of what he does, but it's a promise. What I mean by that is that whenever God forgives us, he promises that he will never remember your sins anymore. That's a promise. He will never bring your sin up against you again. He will bury your sins is the biblical thought in the Old Testament. He will never use your sin against you. Christ Jesus has paid for all of your sins, past, present, and even future. He has taken your sins. He has peeled off your back the burden and he has redeemed you through his blood and has granted you the forgiveness of all your sins. Beloved, that is the gospel. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ came. The angel said, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And then he redeems you, he dies in your place. And then he forgives you of all your sins. I think you know Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's a great truth, isn't it? Not north to south, you know that. Those have poles, North Pole. But as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. He just blots them out. You say, but pastor, I'm still guilty about something that I did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Pastor, if you knew me in my life before Christ, listen, let me just say by the authority of the scripture, 
He's buried your sins as far as the east is to the west. He will never bring them up on you. He's removed your transgressions. It says in Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and here's the promise, and I will not remember your sins. He blots them out. My wife was walking in our house this week. She had a cup of coffee, and one of the grandchildren, I won't say who it was, but Jude came up and pulled, pulled his hand up and knocked the coffee right out of Patty's hand, and it went on the carpet, and so I saw the ladies down on their knees blotting out the carpet. And they're like, yeah, this is how you just blot it. I go, no, you need, some, uh, you need something on there. You get some, put some kind of cleaner. No, it, if, if you just blot it. And so the next day, I'd open the door, and there's a big patch on our, it didn't blot it out. In other words, it came back, and so we'll have to just clean it. But listen, when the Lord Jesus Christ forgives you, he's God. He's the supernatural cleaner. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I'll not remember your sins. Then the writer in Isaiah said in 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like, a, like mist. In other words, he just wipes them away. He forgives you. You've got a burden on your back and I think you've heard my testimony before. I had a massive burden on my back. Massive. You say, could I see it? No, you couldn't see it, but that's Bunyan's picture. I was so guilty all my life, and then I got down on my knees. He drove me to my knees, and when I got up, I just remember feeling so unburdened, if that's a word. The writer in Jeremiah said in 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity, and here's the promise. I will remember their sin no more. He remembers not your sin at all. Micah put it this way, did the prophet in 719, he will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. What a great savior we have. He's done all of this for you. Imagine, just for a moment, beloved, if we had a, a video of your life, all of your life, Let's just say all of it before Christ, maybe even all of it now, that he not only had your actions, he had your every thought, he had your every deed on it, but the truth of the gospel, beloved, is that Christ takes that video and chucks it into the deepest sea to never bring it up again. That's what he does for you, for me. You know, just if you sin six times a day from age 15 all the way up to 70, you'd sin 120,000 times. And our God, through the work of Christ, through his redeeming work on the cross, through his shed blood, extends to you the forgiveness of all your sins. Listen, if you can handle this, it's in the Bible, I'm going to tell you something, and it's really hard to believe First John, we've already covered it some years back in 2.12. He says, I'm writing to you because your sins are what? Forgiven. Past tense. Past tense. You say, well, Scott, I still sin, yes, and you still need to confess your sin. 
But you understand positionally, when you come to Christ, he's forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future. Certainly, you need to confess your sin to stay in daily communion, but you are freed in Christ. Colossians 2.13 says, having forgiven us all our trespasses, it's past tense. So we sin daily, we need cleansing from that to commune with God, but forgiveness given at redemption brings us to a status, Romans 8.1, of no condemnation. God dealt with our sins by taking them away in his death on the cross. Listen, don't ever make light of that. Don't ever make light of the cross. Don't ever make light of the the elements. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We're remembering this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for, put your name in there, my sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself, speaking of the work of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross. What is forgiveness? It's a letting go of and a dismissal of your sin. Listen, your greatest need has been met in the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? If you're here and you have the forgiveness of your sin, the greatest human dilemma in the world is not AIDS, is not racism, is not gender equality, is not wars and factions. The greatest problem is the sin inside of each of us and God sent his son to deal in a wonderful, merciful way with your sin. But here's just the last question, okay? We don't have to go long here. How does it become yours? I mean, this is wonderful. In fact, it's so wonderful. I know this is the word of God because man would never write this. It's so wonderful. This is the truth of the scripture. This is the gospel. But I'm asking you just individually this question. How does salvation become yours? I mean, it's a wonderful work that he did on the cross. It's a wonderful work of his resurrection on the third day. But, but you're, you might be asking, how do I get it though? How does it become mine? How do your children grasp this? And even better than that, what does the Bible say is the means so that this becomes yours? And by the way, you could be an adult and outside of Christ as I speak for 30 years and have never come to this truth. So listen, I might be saying this to young people, but I'm saying this to our adults as well. And this is really the ultimate question of all religion is how do you achieve salvation? How do you gain it? And of course, the world's gonna have you do something. But the Bible says that this becomes yours by grace. God gives it as a free gift to you. Go away humbled this morning. It comes to you by grace through what? What is it? Faith. That's how it becomes yours. You say, how did he become Christians? How did, he, how did he unload his burden? He came to the foot of the cross and his burden crushed him and he, he confessed it and it rolled off him. And then in the next picture, Big Poppy, why is he in a new set of clothes? Big Poppy, why does it look like he's dancing? Because I said Bunyan is giving a picture that when you come to Christ, he takes off your filthy garments and he clothes you in righteousness. And that he put a song on his heart and a joy in his step. But the Bible's really clear that it's 
ours by faith. Would you just turn over to Romans just three, one second. Romans three, this is so clear. Let me just show you this. Listen, you don't have to be a genius to come to Christ, but you do have to be humble enough to say I'm a sinner which for some people is too much because they want to do something on their own. But the scripture set up the means. It's by grace through faith, Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God. How do I get that? How do I become righteous? It's been manifested in Romans 3.21 apart from the law. In other words, you can't get it by the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. There's no distinction in this text between Jew, Gentile, men, women, children. There's, but it's through faith. Would you look over at 324? We are justified by his grace as a gift. It's grace. Through the redemption, there's our word, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by what? Faith. To be received. You say, how do I get it? Through faith. Have you bowed the knee and trusted him? Have you recognized your sin before a holy God? Got down on your knees, beat your breast, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and trust and place your whole faith in him. Look at Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you say, well, Scott, that's so easy, and I would say it is. Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's so humbling because you've got to turn away from your own self-righteousness and beg for the mercy of God. But one is not saved by deeds. One is not saved by religion. One is only saved and only saved by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that as we come to the Lord's table, you would know the sweetness of that gift.